Welcome to Come Follow Me with Bree, episode 29, The Second Coming. So thank you guys so much for being patient with me releasing this episode this week. I allowed myself, did it to myself, I allowed myself to kind of get derailed with some things and it made me, combined with the fact that this section is just like heavy with so much information that it took me longer to um, finish preparing and I was trying to do it in shorter little sections rather than just like sitting down and doing it all at once. So anyway, long story short, took me longer this week to be ready to record. So thank you for your patience. I know that this is not something that's like a primary part of your week where you're like, where is Brienne? I need to hear from her. Um, but nonetheless, here I am and I'm glad that you're here listening. This section is revealed right before what you might call the first general conference of the church after its organization. Um, members had questions about the building up of Zion and the gathering of Israel in the fall and Adam and Eve that they had read about in the Book of Mormon. And this is after the Lord had to deal with the issue of Hiram Page receiving false revelation on the topic of Zion, which was addressed in section 28, where the Lord made it abundantly clear, saying, but behold, verily, verily, I say unto thee that no one shall re- is appointed to receive commandments and revelations in this church, excepting my servant jo- Joseph Smith Jr., for he receiveth them even as Moses. So the prophet is the only one authorized to receive revelation for the church as a whole. But these false revelations only increased members' curiosity on those subjects, which happily in this section we get to hear about the Lord's great enthusiasm for questions from the saints. He says in verse 6 of 29, Whatsoever ye shall ask in faith, being united in prayer, according to my command, ye shall receive. And man, they did receive. They received even more they asked than they asked for. This section is chock full of doctrine about the premortal life, the creation, the fall of Adam, our mortal life, the atonement of Jesus Christ, the resurrection, the final judgment, and so much more than I'm even going to be able to cover. Now, before I get really too far. I want to acknowledge a book that I love and I used a lot for this episode. It's called A Hundred Signs of the Times Leading Up to the Second Coming of Jesus Christ by David J. Ridges. It's a really great one. It's one that I love to have on hand because it's really easy to just open up and you can really open up anywhere at any time and you'll be able to learn a lot. You don't have to really necessarily read it exactly in order. Um, So big props to that book. A large portion of this section is devoted to the signs preceding the second coming. And personally, I love talking about the second coming and the signs preceding it. And I'm excited to be part of this time and get to help prepare the world for it. I love hearing our our prophet and apostles speaking grand things like this that Elder Eyring said in his talk, Sisters in Zion. He says, you sisters, your daughters, your granddaughters, the women you have nurtured, will be at the heart in creating that society of people who will join in glorious association with the Savior. You will be an essential force in the gathering of Israel and in the creation of a Zion people who will dwell in peace in the new Jerusalem. We will be at the heart of creating that society of people who will join in glorious association with the Savior. I mean, that's incredible. But while I enjoy talking about it. I have definitely talked to my share of people who do not like to talk about it, who are nervous and who start to squirm in their seat when the reality of that time and the hard time leading up to it is spoken about. 
and seem to gravitate toward and feel comfort in the idea that, yeah, it'll happen, but not for a long time. Not right now, not in my lifetime. And that reaction, those feelings are easy to understand when we read section 29. There's some scary sounding stuff. We really see the stuff of the Old Testament come out in this section. And I guess I shouldn't really call it the stuff of the Old Testament because this is the stuff of our dispensation. It says in this section, just a few of the things, all the proud and they that do wickedly shall be as stubble and I will burn them up. Before this great day shall come, the sun shall be darkened and the moon be, shall be turned into blood and the stars fall from, from heaven and there shall be greater signs in heaven above and in earth beneath. And there shall be weeping and wailing among the hosts of men. And there shall be great hailstorms. There shall be a great hailstorm hail sent forth to destroy the crops of the earth. Wherefore, I, the Lord, will send forth flies upon the face of the earth, which shall take hold of the inhabitants thereof and shall eat their flesh and cause maggots to come upon them. And their tongues shall be stayed, and they shall not utter against me. And their flesh shall fall from their bones, and their eyes from their sockets. And it shall come to pass that the beasts of the forest and the fowls of the air shall devour them. That's some rough stuff. That's some gruesome stuff. No wonder people feel squirmy and, and uncomfortable when we start to talk about it. It's totally understandable why people want to change the subject, because this is not necessarily a super pleasant subject. I also feel like people get all cringy when there's an implication that this could be in the foreseeably close future, that these unimaginable things could be a reality in our lives. And I know nearly every time I am involved in a discussion about the second coming, many are quick to quote Matthew 24, where it says, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angel of heaven, but my father only. And they take that scripture all by itself and take it to mean that it will be a surprise. But we have plenty of scriptural evidence that if we are being faithful, have the spirit, not relying too much on our own understanding and paying attention, we will not be surprised. Doesn't mean we're going to know the exact timing of it, but we will not be surprised. Notice that it says there that we don't know the day nor hour, but it doesn't mean that we won't know the approximate time. In section 106, verses 4 through 5, it says, And again, verily I say unto you that the coming of the Lord draweth nigh, and it overtaketh the world as a thief in the night. Therefore gird up your loins, that ye may be children of light, that that day shall not overtake you as a thief. It will overtake the world as a thief in the night. But if we are children of light, that day shall not overtake you as a thief. Meaning we will know that the time is approaching. In fact, we're even being told by our prophet that the time is approaching. We will know that his coming is imminent. We don't know the exact timing, but we will not be surprised if we are paying attention and being faithful. So we've got these scripture references telling us that if we are enlightened by the Spirit, we will not be surprised. But we also have such overwhelming implied evidence that the Lord does not intend to take us by surprise. We are given signs. And why give us signs if the intent isn't to enlighten us, to help us know what is coming? We are given lots of very general signs like increasing wickedness, which we have been seeing happening for a long, long time. And then we have very specific signs like two, two apostles will be killed in Jerusalem. A great hailstorm will destroy the crops of the earth. A new temple will be built in Jerusalem. The ten tribes will return. New Jerusalem will be built. If we are paying attention, the closeness of his coming will be absolutely unmistakable. And it's clear that he expects us to pay attention, to recognize the signs for what they are and not brush them aside as though they mean nothing. And a question that I ask myself, and I think that it's important that we all ask ourselves, 
is if you feel yourself getting uncomfortable when people start talking about the second coming and what will happen and that we are seeing signs and it is drawing near, I want you to analyze that feeling. Where is that coming from? Why does that make you uncomfortable? Are you maybe afraid of the terrible things prophesied about? Do you feel unprepared? Do you need to work on your trust in the Savior? Or does that discomfort come from a deep-rooted subconscious or conscious disbelief that that incredible event won't actually occur? That it's so magnificent, so incredible, so impossible that your brain fights against the idea that that event or events leading up to it could be something that will occur in your actual reality. So what does this section tell us about the second coming? I want to talk about that, and in addition, I'll be adding other scriptures to give us an even clearer picture. So in section 29, verse 2, it says, Who will gather his people, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, even as many as will hearken to my voice and humble themselves before me and call upon me in mighty prayer? This gathering has been happening, is happening now, and will continue to happen until the time of the second coming. And then in verse 7, And ye are called to bring to pass the gathering of mine elect. For mine elect hear my voice and harden not their hearts. We are to gather his elect. How will we know who is his elect? Luckily, it's not our job to know. They will hear his voice and harden not their hearts. And by what means will they hear his voice before the second coming? It's by us, by us opening our mouths. It says there, we are called to bring to pass the gathering of mine elect. So by us opening our mouths, unashamed, with kindness and great compassion, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And also by refusing to accept lies, the lies that Satan is spreading all over the earth right now and only speak the truth. Because those elect will recognize his voice in those truths. Some of those truths are that marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of God and that the family is central to the creator's plan for the eternal destiny of his children, that gender is an essential characteristic of individual pre-mortal, mortal, and eternal identity and purpose, that the sacred powers of procreation are to be employed only between man and woman lawfully wedded as husband and wife, that children are entitled to birth within the bonds of matrimony and to be reared by a father and a mother who honor their marital vows with complete fidelity, that elective abortion for personal and social convenience is contrary to the will and commandments of God. President Nelson has told us we are free to think, we are free to plan, we are free to do. But once an action has been taken, we are never free from its consequences. The list of the thing that much of the world disagrees with the Lord on could go on and on. We must be compassionate and kind yet unashamed of these truths. We should be unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and in doing so, those elect will be gathered to him because they will hear his voice in these truths and harden not their hearts. All right, verse 8. Wherefore the decree hath gone forth from the Father that they shall be gathered unto one place upon the face of the land to prepare their hearts and be prepared in all things against the day when tribulation and desolation are sent forth among the wicked. In here we are shown that if we are truly joined with the body of Christ, we will be prepared. The definition of prepared is to make someone ready or able to do or deal with something. It's not just that we will have this checklist that we can put pretty check marks on to say that we are ready. Our hearts will be ready and able to deal with what is to come. We have no reason to fear because if we are relying on him, if we are following the prophet, if we are obeying the commandments, if we are letting God prevail in our minds and in our hearts, we will be enabled to handle what is to come. 
And I think it's significant that it specifies that our hearts will be prepared. There are lots of things and lots of ways we could be prepared, but he said specifically our hearts. And I think that's significant because we know that one of the dangers we have been told about in these final stages is that men's hearts shall fail them. In DNC 4526, it says, And in that day the whole earth shall be in commotion, and men's hearts shall fail them. But if we allow it, our hearts can be prepared to handle what is to come. I want to tweak that scripture a little bit for our purposes to tell us what else is true. And in that day, the whole earth shall be in commotion. And if we allow ourselves to be prepared by him whose plan this is, our hearts will not fail us. If our foundations are built firmly on him, our hearts cannot fail. All right. So before we really dive into what this section describes will happen at and before the second coming, I just want to really quickly list some things that are not mentioned in this section that will happen before the second coming. New Jerusalem will be built. Now, I'm going to tell you how really quickly how I think about the physical building of the city of Zion. And it's just kind of food for thought for you. I think we don't know how long that will take. I think the building of that city could take the amount of time that we imagine building a city would take. Or we kind of have the Lord on our side. So maybe some miraculous things will take place that allow it to happen faster. I tend to think that way because we know that acceleration is taking place and we also know that unimaginable things will happen. So my point is, is that we don't know how long or how short that process will take. And I never want to assume or put a limit on what the Lord can accomplish in his time. Also before the second coming, the Jews will be engaged in an enormous battle and they will be rescued by the Savior who will um, split the Mount of Olives in two and The nearly defeated Jews will flee into the valley that is formed by that division and they will meet the Savior, examine his wounds, and the Savior will fight their battle for them and win. And then lastly, before the second coming, there will be a grand meeting in Adam on Diamon. Bruce R. McConkie described it like this. We now come to the least known and least understood thing connected with the second coming. It is a doctrine that has scarcely dawned on most of the Latter-day Saints themselves. Before the Lord Jesus Christ descends openly, there is to be a secret appearance to selected members of his church. He will come in private to the prophet and to the apostles, then living, and further, all the faithful members of the church, then living, and all the faithful saints of all the ages past will be present. And it will take place in Davis County, Missouri, at a place called Adam on Diamond. And the grand summation of the whole matter comes in these words, And also with all those whom my Father hath given me out of the world. The sacrament is to be administered. This, of course, will be a part of the Grand Council at Adam on Diamond. Wow, pretty cool. I hope I get invited. (laughs) If I don't, and some of you do, and you're allowed to tell me about it, you should tell me about it. But hopefully, cross fingers crossed, hopefully I'll get invited. All right, so in... Um, section 29. So now we're actually getting into to the section and what it talks about in this section. So section 29, verse 9. For the hour is nigh and the day, day is soon at hand when the earth is ripe and all the proud and they that do wickedly shall be as stubble. And I will burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that wickedness shall not be on the face of the earth. For the hour is nigh and that which was spoken by mine apostles must be fulfilled. For as they spoke, so shall it come to pass. I know we've all had the thought before when we hear about terrible things happening on the earth. Why does our loving Heavenly Father allow these things to happen to innocent people, to innocent children especially? And maybe some of us, I know that I have, have thought, 
why did I get so lucky? Why was I born to good parents who love me and taught me? Why was I born to, in this incredible country where I have freedom? Why was I born in the church and have access to the truth from birth? A truth that gives me so much peace and direction in my life and other people just aren't. How is that fair that I have all these things and other people don't? And not just don't have them, but are dealing with unimaginable hardships. We know that the answer in part is agency. Agency is key to our Heavenly Father's plans. That there are choices and consequences, and sometimes the consequences of others' choices affect innocent people for generations. And I'm not going to pretend to understand that or to comprehend how on earth Heavenly Father sorts out who is accountable for what and what parts of who people are and the choices they make are a product of previous sin that was not in their control. I don't understand how that will all work. And I'm glad and grateful that my only job is to love and serve the people around me the best way I can. But somehow he knows. He knows exactly what every person is accountable for. And he knows exactly what justice looks like for them. And as we learn in this scripture, all the proud and they that do wickedly shall be a stubble. We do not relish that that will be the fate of some, but we can take peace in knowing that he knows all and that his balance of justice and mercy will be and is perfect, and there will be absolutely no flaws in his judgment. Now it says here, I will burn them up. What does that mean? In Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy them with the brightness of his coming. And then in D&C 5.19, it says, for a desolating scourge shall go forth among the inhabitants of the earth and shall continue to be poured out from time to time if they repent not until the earth is empty and the inhabitants thereof are consumed away and utterly destroyed by the brightness of my coming. At the Savior's coming, those who are wicked, who are alive on the earth, will be destroyed by the glory of his coming. Their mortal bodies will not be able to withstand it. Consider Moses 1 verse 11, it says, But now in mine own eyes I have beheld God, but not my natural, my spiritual eyes. For my natural eyes could not have beheld, for I should have withered and died in his presence. But his glory was upon me, and I beheld his face, for I was transfigured before him. So Moses was transfigured in order to withstand the presence of the Lord. What will happen to the righteous at this time? In D&C 88.96, it says, And the saints that are on the earth who are alive shall be quickened and be caught up to meet him. Quickened means transfigured. So in summary, the righteous will be transfigured and caught up to meet him, and the wicked will not be transfigured and therefore will not be able to withstand his glory. So next, in verse 10, For the hour is nigh that that which was spoken by mine apostles must be, apostles must be fulfilled, for as they spoke, so it shall come to pass. All his promises must be fulfilled because if they weren't, he wouldn't be a just and perfect God and eternal consequences are necessary for the plan of salvation. As we read these things and our minds feel all jumbled because it's not our inclination to want any of these things to happen to anyone. And I don't think we're supposed to. We, we don't, we're not supposed to want those things to happen to anyone. Our Heavenly Father even, he doesn't want those things to happen to anyone. But it must happen in order for justice to be fulfilled and while we read these great and terrible verses, I think that we should recognize that feeling as mourning the loss of the wicked who will be consumed. It is sad. We as a people who love Jesus Christ and thereby love his children 
should mourn the loss of those people. We should join in the sentiments that Mormon expressed about his people when he said in Mormon chapter 6, starting in verse 17, O ye fair ones, how could ye have departed from the ways of the Lord? O ye fair ones, how could ye have rejected that Jesus who stood with open arms to receive you? Behold, if ye had not done this, ye would not have fallen. But behold, ye are fallen, and I mourn your loss. O ye fair sons and daughters, ye fathers and mothers, ye husbands and wives, ye fair ones, how is it that ye could have fallen? But behold, ye are gone, and my sorrows cannot bring your return. And the day soon cometh that your mortality must put on immortality, and these bodies which are now moldering in corruption must soon become incorruptible bodies. And then ye must stand before the judgment seat of Christ to be judged according to your works. And if it so be that ye are righteous, then ye are blessed with your fathers who have gone before you. Oh, that ye had repented before this great destruction had come upon you. But behold, ye are gone, and the Father, yea, your eternal Father of heaven, knoweth your state, and he doeth with you according to his justice and mercy. Okay, I want to move on and talk about what will happen for the righteous as they are caught up to meet with the Savior. It says in verse 11, For I will reveal myself from heaven with power and great glory, and with all the hosts thereof, and dwell in righteousness with men on earth a thousand years, and the wicked shall not stand. And again, verily, verily, I say unto you, that it hath gone forth in firm decree by the will of the Father that mine apostles, the twelve which were with me in my ministry at Jerusalem, shall stand at my right hand at the day of my coming in a pillar of fire, being clothed with the robes of righteousness, with crowns upon their heads in glory, even as I am, to judge the whole house of Israel, even as many as have loved me and kept my commandments and none else. For a trump shall sound, both long and loud, even upon Mount Sinai, and all the earth shall quake, quake, and they shall come forth, yea, even the dead which died in me, to receive a crown of righteousness, and be clothed upon, even as I am, to be with me, that we may be one. Isn't that incredible? He will come in power and great glory and judge the righteous. The righteous who are alive and all the righteous who have ever lived on the earth will be resurrected and come to be judged by the Savior. And listen to the promise and reward the righteous receive, a crown of righteousness, and to be clothed upon even as I am, and to be with me that we may be one. I always love to recognize when I see a beautiful, perfect completion in the gospel. Before this grand judgment, we must already be one with the Savior in our hearts. And to me, this is just a completion of that unification. We will be one with the Savior. And I can't think of anything better or anything I want more. He will then reign for about a thousand years in righteousness. And I'm sure that there will be so much incredible work to be done during that time. And also, just as a side note, it's not included in this chapter, but something toward the beginning of the millennium is the second trump will sound, and those who lived a terrestrial quality life will be resurrected and judged. Now, something interesting to note, um, just good to know, will the entire earth during this time be members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? No, many of the righteous that are spared will be good and faithful people who are living a celestial quality life according to their own light and knowledge. And I'm sure that many of them will be converted, but ultimately agency is something that will be never be taken away. So I'm sure that that will look different for each person's journey once the Savior is here. Anyway, I'm not quite sure how that is all supposed to play out over the thousand years in the millennium, but it is clear to me that it's not just members of the church who are translated at his coming. 
after these verses, we get back into things that will happen before the millennium reign of the Savior. It says that the sun shall be darkened, that the moon shall be turned to blood, and the stars fall from heaven. Now, I'm not going to pretend that I know perfectly what is happening, um, so I'm not going to dive in super deeply there. But I do know that some amazing things are happening and have been happening in our skies over the last few years. So I think that that's something to take note of and something for you to research. It says that there shall be weeping and wailing, a great hailstorm, flies sent forth, the wicked won't be able to speak, that their bodies will basically melt off their bones, the animals will devour them, and then the great and abominable church, which is the pride of the earth, shall fall. At the end of the millennium, the third trump will sound, and those who lived a telestial quality life will be resurrected and judged. This is all of this information is in DNC 88. And after the thousand years, the devil will be loosed one final time, and men will begin to deny their God. Which is incredible to me because of what we will have been and will be experiencing on the earth at that time. What's a little hazy to me, and I would love if anyone knows this to let me know, is that all those who lived a celestial level life will be judged before Satan is loosed again, or is it after the end of the earth as the earth is being consumed? It says in DNC 88, um, verse 101, these are the rest of the dead, and they live not again, meaning that they aren't resurrected. Until the thousand years are ended, neither again until the end of the earth. So it makes me think that it will be after Satan is loosed for a time. But I could be wrong. Um, it says in verse 23, And the end shall come, and the earth shall be consumed and pass away, and there shall be a new heaven and new earth. For all old things shall pass away, and all things shall become new, even as the heaven, even the heaven and the earth, and all the fullness thereof, both men and beasts, the fowls of the air, and the fishes of the seas. And not one hair, neither moat, shall be lost, for it is the workmanship of mine hand. Now, just in case you don't know, a moat is a tiny bit of substance, so like a little molecule. So nothing shall be lost. Isn't that so comforting? I testify to you that all of these things will happen. We are seeing a grand acceleration of signs. And not only that, our prophet has said these exact words. Quote, time is running out. I don't know exactly when, but it will. And all of these signs have been given to us so that we need not be troubled. The Savior said in Joseph Smith translation, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, 37, and 39. Behold, I speak these things unto you for the elect's sake. And you also shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled. For all I have told you must come to pass. But yet the end is not yet, and whoso treasureth up my word shall not be deceived. For the Son of Man shall come, and he shall send forth his angels before him with the great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together the remainder of his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So likewise, mine elect, when they shall see these things, they shall know that the end is near even at the doors. Everything we are seeing in the world today it was all a part of the plan from the very beginning, and it is all spiritual. The last third of this section is the Lord explaining to us that all things are spiritual. In verse 34, it says, Wherefore, verily I say unto you, that all things unto me are spiritual, and not at any time have I given unto you a law which was temporal, neither any man nor the children of men, neither Adam nor your father whom I created. Behold, I gave unto him that he should be an agent unto himself, and I gave unto him a commandment. But no temporal commandment gave I unto him, for my commandments are spiritual. They are not natural nor temporal, neither carnal nor sensual. Every 
last detail and facet of our lives are a spiritual experience. Every decision we make has a spiritual implication. In verse 39, and it says, And it must needs be that the devil should tempt the children of men, for they could not be agents unto themselves, for if they never should have the bitter, they could not know the sweet. We cannot become as he is if we don't learn to use our agency in a way that allows our spirits to be in charge of our bodies. In verse 45, it says, For they love darkness rather than light, and their deeds are evil, and they receive the wages of whom they list to obey. And the opposite is true as well. They who love light rather than darkness, their deeds are righteous, and they receive wages of whom they list to obey. And what are the wages we receive for righteousness? To receive a crown of righteousness, to be clothed upon, even as I am, to be with me, that we may be one. There's a quote that I love, and the true author is unknown. It says, We are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Who you are is not your body of flesh and bones. Who you are is a spirit child of Heavenly Father, learning how to use your body in a way that will be most beneficial for your spirit. And you can still choose to use your body in ways that will be to the detriment of your spirit. But it is all spiritual. Your body and your spirit together are your soul. And how you choose to allow your spirit to control your body will determine the quality and the experience of that soul. This whole experience, everything that has happened, will happen, and is happening now is spiritual. Every good thing, as defined by God, and every bad thing. Nothing has gone wrong, and He has given us all these signs that, so that we need not be troubled. For everything that's happening is spiritual. Now, all that being said, it's still natural to worry and think, how righteous do I need to be in order to qualify? And since we all make mistakes every day, it's easy to feel unworthy. Marvin J. Ashton said, I am also convinced of the fact that the speed with which we head along the straight and narrow path isn't as important as the direction in, w in which we are traveling. That direction, if it is leading toward eternal goals, is the all-important factor. When we combine that and our knowledge that we can be made spotless daily by laying our sins and inadequacies before him, using the enabling power of the atonement, we can see that it is all about our hearts and if we have given ourselves over to him. He has given us a knowledge of the atonement so that if we know him as he truly is, we can have peace in him and we can be still and know that he is God and we can be not troubled, neither afraid as we navigate these difficult times. If we have faith in him, he who fought valiantly in the premortal existence for our agency, for our potential, for our happiness, for our eternal lives, he who was born, lived, and died for us, he who conquered death so we can live again, he who is alive at this very moment with a body you could see and a voice you could hear if you were with him, he who is active in our lives, he who is not standing idly by while terrible things are happening, he who will make all things right, who will enact justice on all the unjust in the world, he who will gather us up, as he says in section 29, as a hen gathereth her chickens, he who knows your name and what you are experiencing in this life, he who said in verse 5, lift up your hearts and be glad, for I am in your midst and I am your advocate with the Father. He who tells you in verse 1, listen to the voice of Jesus Christ, your Redeemer, the great I am, whose arms of mercy hath atoned for your sins. Again, nothing has gone wrong. All things are spiritual. 
Verse 24, for all old things shall pass away and all things shall become new, even the heaven and the earth and the fullness thereof, both men and beasts, the fowls of the air and fishes of the sea, and not one hair, neither moat shall be lost, for it is the workmanship of mine hand. He has it all under control. And when you read these seemingly scary and harsh things that will happen, remember that his judgments are perfect, just and completely pure. He will right all wrongs. He will conquer all wickedness. He will be our perfect ruler, the King of Kings, perfect, just, and holy. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.